3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855am. It has just gone 7.03 in the morning. Good morning, Malika. Good morning, Inez. Morning. Morning. Um, it is, uh, whoa, yeah, it is December. It's December. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm struggling to process, but... Look, hopefully uh, some of you have some leave coming up or you have some time uh, to spend with family. I know Hanukkah was on the weekend, so warm wishes to everyone in the Jewish community who celebrated over the weekend. Um, yeah, we've got a massive show today. And I mean, we say that every week, but I think today is particularly massive. So um, perhaps we will jump into a rundown. Um, I can kick it off. So S.J. Norman is an artist, writer, and curator, and he joined Rosie to speak about his recently released collection of short stories, Permafrost, earlier this week. Permafrost inverts and queers the Gothic and Romantic traditions. Each story represents a different take on the concept of a haunting or the haunted, and this collection is published by the University of Queensland Press. We will then be speaking with Lady Lash, who is a Kokotha and Greek musician who has brought her mu- magic to stages, including the Sydney Opera House, Prime Rooftop Bars, grassroots festivals and art venues across the country. As a family woman searching for deeper meaning through sound and voice, Lash is, is a musical vision of eclectic rarities that is embodied by culture and experience. She caught up with Priya early in the week to speak about her new album, Spiritual Misfit, which is out with Heavy Machinery Records on the 22nd of November. I then spoke with Amani Haider, who is an award-winning artist, lawyer, mother, and author of The Mother Wound. Amani speaks on the familial and cultural context in which family and domestic violence operate, and it's a story that explores intergenerational trauma, dispels myths about victim survivors, and how to grow around your grief. Writing is hopeful and devastating and impactful, and was published by Macmillan Australia. Yeah, wonderful, and really, really love that interview, so I'm excited for everyone to hear it, and congratulations, Inez, on your first pre-record for Thursday Woo-hoo. Breakfast. <laughs> um, all right, and after that, we're going to be joined by Matt Chun and Janine Kalik uh, about the Sunday Paper, which is a new publication that displays the strong solidarity and co-resistances between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and Palestinian communities in so-called Australia, and it launches next Monday, the 6th of December. Janine Kalik is a Palestinian writer who has had eight years of experience working as a journalist in Australian newsrooms, and Matt Chun is an artist and writer whose latest self-published work, Do You Ever Wonder, came out earlier this month, and we spoke to him then. We will then be joined by Lu Ting, or Elsie, who is a Singaporean Chinese who's been living in Canberra since 2017. Elsie is currently a psych major and is also studying youth work. And Elsie also works part-time as a peer support worker and as a youth worker. Elsie is joining us today to talk about international students and the implications of the current travel restrictions with the new COVID-19 variant. 
Yeah, so no big deal, like not a very big show at all. Um, but yeah, just um, wanted to remind people as well that yesterday was the flag raising day for West Papua. So want to shout out to um, all 3CR listeners who are from West Papua, freedom fighters, you know, continuing to resist occupation by the Indonesian government and the complicities of the Australian government. So Papua Merdeka. And, um, yeah, also wanted to plug the Disability Day broadcast, which is this Friday, the 3rd of December, which is going to be, um, as always, curated by the wonderful Pauline Vatuna. So encourage people to tune in, and uh, we'll play a little bit more information about that now. Tune in to Grounding Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're making space to explore what disability justice has been and will be on these lands, with programming led by black and indigenous community members, in addition to programs by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash disability. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast, 3CR 855 AM. And now Inez is going to take us through the headlines. Thank you so much, Priya. So in headlines this week, before we continue, we want to start by noting for First Nations listeners that this news discusses an Aboriginal person who has passed away. The Victorian coroner will investigate the death of an Aboriginal woman who died in hospital earlier this week after she was transferred from the Dame Phyllis Forest Centre in Melbourne. This is by the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, the family has asked for space to grieve this loss. This is the second death of an Aboriginal woman at a maximum security prison in two years. In ongoing damning news about the state of logging in Victoria, a new report released this week reveals systemic and widespread failure by the state government logging agency to regrow Victoria's forests after logging. Based on data obtained under freedom information laws, the report exposes that one-third of logging areas are failed failing to regenerate within three years, which is twice the failure rate acknowledged publicly by Vic Forrest. In other news, new research has found that the federal government's neglect of social and affordable housing is creating acute stress and despair for renters on low incomes, especially those in regional Australia. While Victorian, Australian, Tasmanian and West Australian state governments have announced significant public housing construction programs following the pandemic, advocates say the state's housing support is no substitute for federal action. And in a positive step forward in First Nations' involvement in heritage law reform, the new Aboriginal Heritage Alliance has held its first meeting to advise the federal government on possible legislative change. A parliamentary report released earlier this week, earlier this year, sorry, found countless instances where cultural heritage has been the victim of development and profit agendas, including the devastating destruction by Rio Tinto of the Jukan Gorge Games in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. And finally, the Victorian government's pandemic bill has gone back to the lower house with a series of amendments, including the creation of a joint parliamentary committee that can review public health orders. 
Accusations about the process are coming from all sides, with the government being accused of rushing the bill and the opposition accused of filibustering. The bill gives the Premier and Health Minister the power to declare a pandemic and enforce restrictions and is set to place a state of emergency that expires on December 15th. Yeah, I mean, I think it is just so... I think something that's really important to keep in mind with all of this is the fact that um, while there are, you know, continued protests against um, against the lockdowns, against well, the lockdowns are over, but they're still sort of framing it in that way against uh, mandatory vaccination. There still are really important critiques that need to be made about government processes and, you know, the restriction of freedoms that are still, you know, made from the position of a public health focus. So just a little bit of nuance, folks, a little bit of nuance, encouraging uh, some nuance. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced, Produced by Yan. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we are now heading into our first interview of our show. Um, SJ Norman is an artist, writer, and curator, and he joined Rosie to speak about his recently released collection of short stories, Permafrost. Permafrost inverts and queers the Gothic and Romantic traditions. Each story represents a different take on the concept of a haunting and the haunted. And this collection is published by University of Queensland Press. Thank you so much for joining me this morning on Thursday Breakfast, SJ. It's my pleasure, Rosie. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to first invite you to introduce yourself, your work, and this new collection of short stories called Permafrost. Uh, yeah, well, I'm SJ Norman. I um, do a few different things. I'm obviously a writer and an artist, curator. Um, I am in South Wales, Curry, so my mum's a library. My dad's English. I was born here on Daniel Country, which is where I am today, on some sort of Daniel land. Um, I am transpatrical in person, my pronouns are he, him, or they, them, sometimes. Uh, yeah, and I just wrote a book called Permafrost, which is out now through the University of Queensland Press. I hadn't really read many short stories in a, in a while, and I really loved reading these stories, and I just wanted to begin first, I guess it's a broad question, but just what drew you to writing stories about haunting? It's, uh, it's honestly, it's a simple question, but a tricky one for me to answer, largely because I started working on this book such a long time ago. And so it's difficult for me to talk about what, like, what, about its inception. You know what I mean? Because I started writing these stories, uh, when I was about 19, and I'm 37 now. Mm. So, it, you know, the book has been completed over a very, very long period of time, or you know, most of it was completed in my early 20s, or like between the ages of like 19 and 24. And then I revisited the manuscript a few years later and, and sort of pulled it out for publication. So I guess um, it's, it's difficult for me to track, you know, the origin story of this project, you know, in a way that feels that feels truthful. But, you know, I can say that ghosts and hauntings um, 
you know, in the broader sense of that word, is a, is a thematic that I guess has pervaded most of my artistic work and most of my creative work in one way or another. Mm. Um, and, yeah, there's a few reasons for that. You know, for one thing, um, you know, I've had a lot of those experiences in my life, even throughout my life, lived in a lot of haunted houses. Um, you know, I'm a black fella. <laughs> like, you kind of just get, you know, I got, I got raised up hearing those stories. And um, got raised up kind of hearing, um, yeah, hearing ghost stories, but also with an understanding that we're in, in relationship with the unseen um, and in quotidian relationship with the unseen world as well, which I guess is, um, and I got that from both of my parents, you know, from my, from my English dad and from my Korean mum. And, and, you know, I guess that's a theme that, not, not necessarily a theme, but like something that I wanted to convey in this book was, ghost stories that are quite ordinary, <laughs> you mm. know, where, like, not a lot happens in most of them, and um, that's certainly been uh, my experience of what most actual hauntings are like. You know, they're often quite a series of repetitive events and uh, things that aren't resolved and um, things that are always just out of, the, out of the corner of your sight, which is much more disturbing a lot of the time than, you know, the way that the ghost story has been packaged within the West. Um, so I guess that was part of what I wanted to explore with this book. No, I just wanted to ask, actually, my next question was about bodies and physical material in the book because mm. there's this obvious thread of haunting and ghosts and kind of supernatural beings, um, but then the ways that you describe bodies are so fleshy and it's so, like, substantive and material, and that also goes mm. for, I feel like, plants and food and um, landscape mm. and houses. And so I was wanting to ask more about this connection between the material and kind of a spiritual world um, and mm. how you see that playing out through the stories. Wow, what a rich and interesting question. Um, thank you for that. I hadn't even... I don't think I've really thought about that. <laughs> super consciously um but now you mention it yeah there is that um that kind of very distinct tension in a lot of the stories between i guess the corporeal and the non-corporeal or the extra corporeal right Mm. um and the relationship between you know the two-dimensional visceral world and whatever lies beyond it um and whatever and whatever forces do or don't exert themselves on our physical lives and spaces, you know. Um, and the same goes for, I guess, the inhabiting spirit of place, um, or the inhabiting spirits of place, uh, and, and of objects, and um, the way that history lives in, in, in space, in houses, in, in places, but also in bodies, and, and that there isn't a separation necessarily between the two, you know, that there's, there's you know, that we're viscerally in relationship with, with all of these things. Um, I guess that's one way to answer the question. Mm, yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, and that, that kind of physical sensation and that vividness in the story, um, it reminded me as well of like, during lockdown I've really had this desire to watch horror movies it's like something to Mm -hmm. feel something in the body and I know that your visual art practice and your performance practice is also concerned with bodies in the body Mm. in different ways and I was wondering if you just wanted to speak a bit about um yeah the overlap of those two parts of your work and practice Mm. I get asked this question a lot and I still I still am not quite sure I'm still searching for an answer to that um I guess 
the, the way that I, the first response I often have is that, uh, you know, my, my performance and, and visual arts practice, as well as my practice as a curator, which is also very focused on the body and on embodiment and um, shared experiences of embodiment, um, and my writing practice, they all kind of operate in the one, on the one hand, on parallel tracks, and in many ways, they are very separate practices for me, and I, uh, I have to embody a very separate sense of self in order to actualize projects in each of those spaces. Mm. Who I am as an artist is very different to who I am as a writer, and there's a big code switch that has to happen, or a big gear shift that has to happen between those, between those two different creative process spaces for me. So in, on the one hand, they feel very different, um, but on the other hand, they largely draw on the same themes and also, um, I think, draw on the same reservoir of, like, of, of energy, you know, like, not to be too vague about it. Um, and I guess I'm just obsessed with bodies, you know. I'm obsessed, I'm obsessed with corporeality. Um, I don't understand how you could not be. Like, it's, it's, such a, it's such an incredibly, like, rich mystery that we're all living a different version of, you know. Um, and... I think that's just a just a pervasive theme of my work that probably will be forever, you know. Yeah, I mean that absolutely. I, it's so obvious in the stories, like that that in the first story, the description of the stepmother's breasts are just is just like, <laughs> wow, really? I don't know, it just ca- absolutely captured me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I also really enjoyed um, reading the queer characters in this book and, you know, there's like some younger characters and I, I know you were saying you wrote the book when you were younger and there's like experiences yeah. and discoveries but there's also older characters. I just felt like there was a real uh, spaciousness for queerness. Like mm. it's both the norm, if that's the right word, and also it's really various in the stories. And I was wondering mm. if you could speak a bit about writing queer sexuality and gender in these stories. Again, that's a, another really nice question. Um, spaciousness is a, is a lovely way to describe to describe it, and I'll take that as a compliment. Um, I guess I wanted to write those characters in a way that gave, yeah, that gave them space to, to breathe and, and, and be many things, like not just queer. <laughs> um, it's just, and there's, I guess there's, a, there's a, maybe a deliberate kind of evasiveness around representation in mm. the book. Um, that goes to queerness, that goes to indigeneity, that goes to transness, that goes to, like, many of the, like, intersecting aspects of my being as the author that go into that book, you know, that form the lens, the creative lens that through which I produce that book. Um, but I'm very, you know, I was resistant in this project to, um, to, to writing or, or spelling out any of those experiences in a, in a representational way, you know, like in a way that would be necessarily immediately legible or literate to a majority audience. Yeah, I like this idea of it being like kind of assumed as the norm, I guess. I, I guess I would like say that's, that's the space that I'm writing from, you know, it is my norm. Mm. Um, so, and if someone is reading my work, then they're, they're, they're stepping into a world of my making you know mm. um and and there's a there's a collision that happens between the world that an author makes and and the the world that and the self that a reader brings to the book and i guess i wanted to create space for my characters um but also space for a reader to inhabit the experiences of those characters in a way that is also spacious which is 
reasons why I'm kind of deliberately elusive around who the narrators are, mm-hmm. um, which is something that a lot of people have picked up on. Um, but, and some readers have found that frustrating. They're just like, we don't even know the gender of these people. I'm like, yeah, no, you don't. I mean, it's not to say that the that each of the narrators are like tabula rasa. They're not. Like, I know who they are. Um, and there's definitely... Um, they are definitely distinct characters. Thank you. Um, and the last last kind of book question I had was just about, um, actually about books in the story and the kind of power that they have um, within mm. some of the stories. And there are other objects that sort of work in that way too, like records and photographs. Um, yeah. But I was wondering about, yeah, the sense of possibility, also escape, also world building um, that mm. books give the characters and maybe how that is connected to your own desire to write. The collection and also intimacy. Books feel like really incredibly intimate in the in in the book. Yeah, I mean, I wrote I wrote secondhand the story set in a bookshop when I was working in a bookshop, <laughs> funnily enough. Um, and many of the characters are, you know, based on um, people on regulars who used to come into the shop. Um, and it was a late night shop. You know, it was open till one in the morning, and I used to work the late shift. Um, and that was when you could sort of get like a lot of a, lo- a lot of the regulars would come in and would stop for a chat. And um, bookshops are kind of quite quite interesting places, especially secondhand bookshops. You know, they're like they're quite distinct in many ways from from um, you know new new retail books uh, because you do get these yeah you know like everything you describe I described in the story you, do, you get these like massive deceased estates come in and you have a, the entire reading history of a complete stranger mm. in front of you that you then have to process the sale. And people do have these incredibly intimate relationships with their books. And um, books as objects are, like, profoundly magical, you know. Um, at the same time, it's also, I feel like I have, I have a bit of, like, in- internal tension with the book, as a form, you know, because the book as a form is an invention, a kind of an invention of empire, mm. you know, and so there's some, I, like, I have some bigger kind of, I don't know, I guess ontological tension around the, the book as an object and, and the kind of hallowed sort of sacredness, cultural sacredness of the book as an object mm. um, coming as I do also, you know, like on my mother's side from... Well, we we talk about oral cultures. I mean, that's, this is actually kind of a contested term to a certain extent as well. But you know, coming from a culture that also values orality and values different different ways of you know non logocentric um, knowledge production and and knowledge lineage. You know, but anyway, that's a whole other bigger like, question that we don't need to go into. But I guess what I'm trying to I'm trying to say is that um, I kind of I am a book lover. Obviously, I'm a writer, but at the same time, I have some strange feelings around the preciousness of books in in sort of the majority culture. I don't know if that's a, a really way out answer. Um, I think you also mentioned records and photographs, and and music, you know, is a big one in a lot of the stories. Um, the, the last story playback is sort of like meant there's a lot of writing about music, books, records, photographs, like these are vessels of memory. Right, so in many respects, like a book, like I feel like all books are haunted objects once they've been read. Do you know what I mean? They're, 
marked by the person who's experienced that world. Mm. Um, finally, SJ, I just wanted to ask you where listeners can get a copy of your book and also follow any of the other work that you're doing at the moment. So you can buy the book anywhere the books are sold. Um, major retailers, all the major retailers are stocking it. Obviously, I'm going to find it at your local independent bookseller. Uh, you can also buy it online, of course, Booktopia is stocking it. Um, or you can buy it directly from a publisher. Obviously, avoid Amazon if you can. And my Instagram is vitreousluster. Uh, you can also follow a couple of my other projects on Instagram. So there's Knowledge of Wounds, which is a queer indigenous-led knowledge exchange and performance platform that I started a few years ago with my collaborator, Joseph Pierce. Um, definitely follow that. So that's Knowledge of Wounds, just all one word. And, yeah, I've got a few projects coming up. The, the next big one is, is the National Indigenous Training at the National Gallery. That's in March. So keep an eye on that. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, so much, SJ, for joining us on Thursday Breakfast and also being so generous with my long-winded questions. No, I loved your long-winded questions. They were fabulous. Thanks, Rosie. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and it's just hit 7.28 AM this morning. We just heard an interview with Rosie and SJ Norman. SJ Norman is an artist, writer, and curator, and he joined Rosie to speak about his recently released collection of short stories, Permafrost, and this collection is published by the University of Queensland Press. A proud black man, proud black man, not wonder. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Presented by Dari Manmoro. Starts Monday, June 21st at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. You're on 3CR 855am with a Thursday morning breakfast crew and that was a little Sting promoting uh, Strong Spirit, which is run by Darty Monroe. And just want to let people know, if you're up in the Preston Reservoir, Thornbury area, they have an amazing coffee truck up there. So uh, recommend people checking them out on social media and finding out where the coffee truck is, grabbing yourself um, a cup. And uh, we're about to go into our next interview. So I caught up with Lady Lash earlier in the week to speak about her new album, Spiritual Misfit, which is out with Heavy Machinery Records on the 22nd of November. And Lady Lash is a Kokatha and Greek musician who brought her magic to stages, including the Sydney Opera House, prime rooftop bars, grassroots festivals and arts venues across the country. As a family woman searching for deeper meaning through sound and voice, Lash's it lashes is a musical vision of eclectic rarities that is embodied by culture and experience. And this album is really a tour de force. So I'm looking forward to everybody hearing this interview. Crystal, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thanks Priya for inviting me and you know, having this opportunity to jump on and connect with everybody. Would you mind by starting letting listeners know a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, my name's Crystal. I'm originally from the far west coast of South Australia. I'm a Gugu the woman with Greek heritage. And I'm currently living here in Nam, here on the Kulin Nations. And um, I'm a hip-hop jazz artist, I guess, turned experimental, experimenting my sounds and understanding um, where I sit in this world, psychologically, spiritually, 
and physically. And yeah, I guess we're just souls living this, living our high life, you know, as much as we can. So thank you for having me. No, it's, it's really awesome to be able to have you on, especially now that live music is starting to return and there's been some amazing music coming out, including your album, which was released on the 22nd of November, Spiritual Misfit. And I think this really shows a pretty incredible genre shift from your hip hop and jazz roots that you've been working on, you know, in your solo works and with Oetha. And you've shown like so much range and versatility in this album. And I was hoping you could take us through some of the process of developing that. Yeah, I've been sitting on this album for a while, but um, the, the song process, uh, a few years it's taken me. Um, I'm just going through this deep shift of, uh, I think, just moving sounds and understanding my identity as a, a confident woman, a confident black woman at that. And, uh, yeah, just messing with the sounds a lot and understanding um, how it sits within my identity within my culture, with my Aboriginal culture and my Greek heritage as well. So, you know, it's just been, um, I think my music embodies a lot of the spiritual growth and the, I don't know, the the deep, deep entwines of music, you know, that um, frequencies and sounds that it's able to heal as well and, and connect and be able to um, ignite something in, in someone else you know, to make them feel. Because I think I'm very much of an empath as well. I I feel a lot and I'm just, yeah, working my way through that. And music is the outlet that, yeah, it's like an extension of me, you know. Yeah, I think that comes through really strongly in the album. I mean, the way that you express different themes through the different songs and your, you know, choice of composition. And it seems like this has been a very personal work as well, like you said. I want to ask, did, did a bazooki feature in Mother's Cries? Was that a reference to Rambetica? Uh, yeah, and there was a, there was a Rambetica because I was in that documentary, but um, it's the Baglama okay. featured in there, yeah, by, awesome. played by Katarina Stevens. So I just this is during COVID, and I was like, sis, I want to send you some stuff. I'd love you to put your amazing, you know, your skilled guitar work down. And, yeah, sent it off. She sent it back, and, yeah, it just came out beautiful because um mother's cry is very personal and deep it was like honoring both of my ancestral lines to um come into this this power that i hold um not power but just this soul journey that i hold i feel like this siren this soul siren moving into the cosmic realms and in deep into the ocean yeah so it's a very um big track as well and you're very um, ritualistic, I guess you can say. But yeah, just honouring honouring who we are and a beautiful, confident woman, no matter where you're from in the world, you know. Mm. Yeah, no, it was really it was really amazing to hear that come through. And yeah, could you speak to some of to some of that? The way that your personal journey kind of maps on to the use of different genres and the use of different you know instruments, compositions, styles of electronic production as well. Yeah, uh, I started off with poetry when I first started, you know, writing music. So it was just a natural progression for me to do poetry with music. And I just felt like it just, there was just like this ebb and flow. There was natural, natural feeling and natural just being with it. Yeah, that's how it felt. But the process of it all was very deep and very psychological as well because I was going through a whole bunch of personal stuff like separating from my now ex-husband and during covid and it was just this, this deep journey of coming back to self 
and understanding my identity again, you know, as this this woman in this world. Obviously, I've, you know, done a lot with my documentary as well, but, yeah, it's just this never-ending rebirth and death, and I've died many times, so, yeah. It's an incredibly rich catalogue of work, which is why I would really encourage people to listen to the whole album, because you're not going to get the full picture from just one track. But yeah, you also mentioned you did have a documentary out in 2020, um, Lady Lash, which was the winner of this year's Setting Sun Film Festival's Best Indigenous Achievement Award. And it's also now an official selection for Melbourne Women in Film Festival 2022. So congratulations on that. And I was wondering if you wanted to comment on the way that the documentary is being received, but also that process of visual storytelling as well as um, musical. Yeah, of course. Um, I guess awards are just the extra extra little oomph there but I think the message in the documentary is more important you know than awards and I think winning the awards are more to do with okay more people will get to see it as well and understand what's happening out on country and within the music the process of music making of um, how how it works especially being a mother in the music industry you know so um, and a creative mother at that the documentary opened up so much um, healing for me and then it just threw me, wished me into this another portal of this creation that I've done on Spiritual Misfit. So it's just this evolution of music that I've done. And I don't want to stay in one box. I love to shift and move different genres. And I don't know what that is. It's just a natural you know, progression for myself. Yeah, and I think it just shows through. Uh, there's a thread, you know, that that goes through with, with whichever I do. Because now I'm also filmmaking, so uh, being a producer on a documentary, and yeah, learning the ins and outs and how to um, tell stories through film and visuals. You know, I think it's very important. Yeah, and you can tell it however you want. You know, so I think yeah, stories are very. What do you call it? The pinnacle of my life as well is even when I write, it's very visual. It feels like it's a, it's a movie in my head. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that definitely comes through in both, you know, the way that the documentary plays out and in spiritual misfits. It seems like sort of a continuum of growth and personal exploration mm-hmm. that, you know, you're going through your personal story in the documentary and then the different ways that branches out comes through in the album. Is there anything else you're working on right now that you'd like to share? Is there a tour in the works? Um, nothing to be announced yet. I'm not announcing yet because we're still in the middle of COVID, I guess. Um, and then you've got this new strain that's coming through. <laughs> I'm so over it. But, um, yeah, at this point of time, um, obviously I've just released the album. I've been thinking about jumping into, um, obviously I'm doing film work right now. And, yeah, just working out what um, I want to do musically next. I'm sitting there looking at my instruments and I'm like, I know I've got to play you soon. <laughs> But it will come in time. It will come in time. I've got some rehearsing to do. But, yeah, I'm just a producer for a documentary at the moment. So that's that's in the churning away in the works. And that's a lot of work. It's a very powerful story. It's called Native Tidal Rockets. It's about uh, back out on my country, um, you know, the military, that put a launch pad out on our community. So a very important story. And, um, you know, our matriarchs are advocating you know, the, or what's happening out on country. So it's very important to um, protect country, sacred, our sacred sites. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really excited to see that come out too. 
where can people grab a copy of Spiritual Misfits? Yeah, um, you can jump on Bandcamp and order uh, a 12-inch vinyl, so which is pretty cool. This is my first ever vinyl. Um, mcladylash.bandcamp.com. Yeah, just jump on there. You'll be able to find all my um, discographies. Is that what it's called? Discographies. <laughs> so, yeah, um, be able to pick up the digital copy as well. Um, even jump on my website, www.mcladylash.com. And it's on all on all digital uh, platforms at the moment as well. So Sweet. Yeah, and there's a link to the documentary as well on your website too, so people should go mm-hmm. check that out as well. Well, yeah. thank you so much for, yeah, making the time to talk with us about this. All the best with, you know, the reception of the album. I'm sure it will be fantastic because it was a real journey. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you for listening and inviting me here today and, you know, let the music, let the music roll on and um, hopefully it heals and inspires people as well. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.39 in the morning. And you just heard an interview uh, that I did earlier this week with Lady Lash, who's a Kokatha and Greek musician and who has recently put out her new album, Spiritual Misfit, which is out with Heavy Machinery Records on the 22nd of November. And we're going to hear a track from that album. So we are going to hear Crest of Gold, which is one of the singles from Spiritual Misfit by Lady Lash. Yeah, from dust to dawn, the ego makes 
in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yeno Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're on Thursday Breakfast, and you just heard the amazing Crest of Gold from Lady Lash's new album, Spiritual Misfit. And once again, just really encourage people to listen to the whole thing, because there is such an incredible mix of different genres within that album that you're not going to get the whole picture from just one song. And I just want to let people know about... Um, a study that's happening at the moment at Monash University with Andrea Baker, who's an ex-Women on the Line programmer as well. So please, please, please help if you can. Um, they have until the 6th of December to get 200 respondents to a survey, on, uh, a, which is a pilot study to address sexual violence in the Melbourne music industry. And, um, yeah, basically, it's a Monash University survey that's going to gauge the extent of sexual violence in Melbourne's music industry. And it's the first time a world music city will measure the problem and find new solutions for a post-pandemic world. And you can get in touch with Andrea at andrea.baker at monash.edu. That's andrea.baker at monash.edu to find out more information. And once again, that needs to be completed by the 6th of December, 2021. That's on Monday. So please do check it out and participate if you can. And now um, I'm going to pass it over to Inez to introduce that next interview. Thank you so much, Priya. So we are having um, just a pre-record listen to an interview I had with Amani Hader, who is um, an artist, a lawyer, mother, and author of The Mother Wound. Welcome to this very special interview on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. Please be aware that the interview you're about to listen to contains discussions of domestic and family violence, which may be distressing to some listeners. If this content does not feel safe to listen to at this current point, please come back to the show in 15 minutes. In today's interview, we're joined by Amani Hayda, artist, lawyer, and author of The Mother Wound. Thank you so much for joining me here today, Amani. I'm so incredibly appreciative of your time. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like the book, The Mother Wound, which I read twice and is just as impactful on the second read, it really articulates the reckoning between familial and cultural systems in which domestic and family violence operate. Would you mind speaking on maybe what the title The Mother Wound means to you? The Mother Wound is a reference to an idea that's in popular psychology that women are subjected to traumas because of living within patriarchal systems and institutions and they then pass on um, the unhealed parts of that trauma to their children unconsciously. It might shape their mothering, it might shape their relationships with other people. I first came across the concept 
a few years ago and I was in the process of preparing an art exhibition for Fairfield City Museum and Gallery and I decided that I would play around with that idea and get creative with it because I wanted to dig deeper into what is the mother wound and what are some other wounds that we experience and how do we go to the root of all of these things? Where is it all starting and how do these wounds both literally and figuratively play out in our lives? And as a mother, how do I put an end to some of the trauma that I've experienced and been um, part of my life and prevent myself from conveying that to the next generation and what power do I even have within the systems and structures that we live in to even put a stop to it in the first place so it's really a, a both a personal reflection and a political question. I think the thing that really stood out to me reading the book is that there is such an immense pressure on victim survivors to behave in a certain way to be cordial resilient, heroic, forgiving. How do you think that these myths impact someone's ability to move forward? Well, I think first of all, in the immediate aftermath of trauma, they really impact your ability to express your grief and your anger. So for me, that was something that really stood out from day one. I felt that my situation had created a really complex dynamic within my family, within my extended community, and with, you know, in terms of my relationship with the world. So I um, felt a sense of silencing or self-censoring around the more complicated parts of my mum's experience. I felt that a lot of nuance and complexity was being erased in the way that people were speaking about the act of domestic violence in which my mum was killed. So it became quite obvious to me that victims of crime are really pushed into a box and um, have a lot of social expectation projected onto them. And if you don't play into those social expectations, people quickly withdraw their compassion or their empathy for you because it might be uncomfortable for them to sit with your complex emotions. It might be uncomfortable for them to sit with the fact that you couldn't control what happened to you and how you've been victimized. And that's a that's a frightening thought to have because what happened to my mum could have happened to a lot of other women mm-hmm. um, and it just so happened to happen to my mum. So I think a lot of people want to distance themselves from these frightening thoughts and um, we'll construct a lot of different narratives to detach from victims when really what they need is empathy, compassion, uh, solidarity in, in a really proactive way. A lot of the reflections that I have in the book are about how I kind of moved away from those expectations and challenged some of them and which ones still shape my thinking and my my advocacy in the present. Thank you. I think following on from wanting to understand the systems that surround victims and impact in person, earlier in the book you speak about how you felt the feminism that you learnt about had a very white Western lens that lacked inclusivity and that you felt more seen by the Muslim feminists that you studied and interacted with. Why did you feel that you had to look elsewhere for that? This is something that I have in common with a lot of uh, Muslim women and women of colour more broadly. We are acutely aware of the fact that women's rights language has often been, been used to cause harm to our communities, to invade countries, and that the repercussions of that have been long term and have filtered down to our generation. So it's important for us to resist the idea that um, white feminism can save us or that it can provide us with a solution to our problems. I think a one-size-fits-all feminism is, you know, from the get-go, a, a harmful idea. The, the idea of intersectional feminism has 
entered mainstream dialogue and is beginning to inform some of the conversations that we're having. And obviously at the time I didn't have that language. Yep. So it's also been empowering to be able to tap into that knowledge and learn from um, the scholars who have done that work already. Being able to see different types of feminists, those who apply an Islamic lens and those who don't, and to learn that language and to build my own capacity and my own ability to express my experiences confidently was really key to me feeling confident enough to do any kind of advocacy or engage the public in any way in my story. And one of the first barriers that I had to confront was the fact that um, we don't just live in a gendered society, we live in a society where racism manifests in lots of different ways and that I'm navigating these two different forms of oppression and two different forms of injustice at the same time. I really had to build my literacy around race in order to speak better about gender. Um, and I think that's really important and key to the work that women of colour are doing. And I think it'll make for better policy down the track. I think it'll be more empowering. I think it'll lead to more culturally sensitive uh, solutions and projects and services. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that that's the kind of space that we're opening up, up now so that we do feel included and heard within this work. Beautiful. I think that's so important to have that intersectionality and different modes to be able to express yourself in the best way. With the title of like advocate and being resilient, I feel like often those titles are put onto impacted people without actually critiquing the systems that have had to make them advocate or resilient. What is your thoughts around, I guess, resilience? I've often had people compliment me for being resilient or compliment me for being inspiring to, to them in their particular situation. And I think there's, you know, even though it often comes from a well-meaning place, um, it is really important to challenge those structural issues because otherwise we just continue to have people who have been victimised and then we congratulate them on how they handle it and we never really solve the cause of their trauma. So one of the things that I like to point to is that Yes, I've been able to develop my resilience through a bunch of different habits, but I would not have been able to do that without some of the structures that I was able to access. And access to counselling and mental health support is an issue in this country, and it shouldn't be. We're, we're, Australia has the wealth required to um, better prioritise people's mental health. It has the, the wealth required to establish trauma recovery centres for women that are specialised and that's, there's a current campaign to support one right now in uh, Wollongong. We need to invest in these public health measures and focus more on prevention in terms of violence rather than celebrating or putting on a pedestal individuals who have managed to, against insurmountable grief and trauma, um, somehow still be functional. I don't at all profess to just have an innate resilience. Um, but there are also things worth celebrating that I inherited from my mum, from my grandmother, and they're things like my faith, my creativity, my attitude to... Um, solving problems and my desire to want a better world. I think they're worth acknowledging as forms of resilience that are really valuable and deserve to be highlighted and, and really preserved for the next generation. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I really like how you've been able to put that all together. I think going back earlier in the interview when we spoke about all the systems that have had to also make you resilient and that how your mom was not just impacted by one individual, but multiple systems like family, community and dominant society. Even when there has been a murder at the hands of the husband, people will still make excuses for the abuse and victim blame. And one of the recommendations from the Royal Commission into Family Violence, which was passed down in March 2016, was for service providers to act inclusively and avoid discrimination. Also given 
the frequency of and severity of domestic violence during COVID, how do you think systems can better support cultural sensitivity? Yeah, I think COVID has really shone a light on the on where the gaps are. Um, and these are gaps that predate COVID, but I think it's just highlighted them and brought them to the surface. So in Western Sydney, um, I sit on the board of the Bankstown Women's Health Centre. We were in an LGA of concern and under severe um, lockdown measures, a very heavy police presence for a prolonged period. And I know that services that do a lot of work with women around domestic violence had to redeploy their resources in order to be, to meet basic needs like food shortage, um, food insecurity, delivering just immediate needs to families who are being locked down, doing mental health checkups um, with people who are vulnerable or isolated, providing um, in-language services and communication for people who are otherwise really cut off. And that really demonstrates that we haven't put enough money and thought into the services that fill these gaps, then that means that your your existing infrastructures are not doing enough. We really fail sometimes to connect DV with women's health um, and look at it as a, just a criminal justice issue. But when you actually think about it, it's a public health issue and has long-term physical and mental health consequences on entire families. So for me, investing in this kind of work is really important and should be a priority for the government. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any programs or campaigns that you would like to shine light onto at the moment? Because you spoke about the previous campaign in Wollongong. Was there anything else? Yeah, so that was that is one that I would really encourage people to support. Um, if anyone is interested in supporting their local women's shelter, and I think that's such an important immediate resource for women and their children while they're escaping violence and they're in that state of crisis and need a temporary safe place to breathe and plan their next steps. And of course, supporting Indigenous-led um, women's organisations like Jira in Victoria. I would always encourage people to supporting those sorts of organisations and the really important work they do. We'll make sure to put a note of that in the episode notes as well. And lastly, I think towards the end of the book, you spoke about wanting to focus on how your mum had lived because she had a rich, wonderful life and so did your grandmother as opposed to the way that they died. So is there something that you would like to leave the listeners with that you would like them to remember about your mum and your grandmother? The biggest thing for me is to remember that victims are not weak people and victims are not people who lack agency. I think we ought to celebrate the immense achievements that women like my mum and my grandmother achieved through their lives despite immense barriers. So my mum was able to establish a career, get involved in her community. And my grandmother raised nine children um, through war and occupation. And I think those things are really worth celebrating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I think this has been really insightful and there's lots of actions that we can also take to better support victims and impacted people of family domestic violence. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been an interview with Amani Hader on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am, artist, lawyer and author of The Mother Wound, which you can pick up from all good bookstores. If the content in this interview has raised questions, concerns or caused distress, please contact 1800RESPECT on 1800-737-732 or visit 1800respect.org.au. Additionally, you can contact InTouch on 1800 755 988 or visit intouch.org.au and we recommend browsing these websites in a private browser if possible. Thank you. Great, so that was just an interview with Amani Haider and now I'll pass it on to Priya.
Yeah, it's uh, very exciting this morning to be joined by uh, Matt Chun and Janine Kalek, who are going to be talking with us about the uh, upcoming release of the Sunday paper, which is a incredible collection of writing um, from from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and Palestinian writers who are creating on stolen land and have a real acute uh, experience and intertwined experiences of resistance against colonial occupation. So good morning, Matt, and good morning, Janine. Good morning. Um, Yeah, it's so great to have you here. And I was... Um, hoping that you could just briefly introduce yourselves uh, for us. Maybe I'll go Janine and then Matt. Yeah, so I am a Palestinian content creator. I was um, sorry. I, I um, was a journalist for about eight years um, before I, I left newsrooms um, for multiple reasons. So. Um, at the moment, I, um, yeah, I'm just sort of creating and writing and um, doing my own thing. Incredible. And Matt? Yeah, thanks, Priya. Um, my name's Matt Shun, um, and I'm based on Ewan Land. Um, I'm an artist and a writer. Awesome. And um, maybe we'll just jump straight into it. So, Janine, you did mention that you have been you had worked as a young Palestinian journalist in Australian newsrooms and your experiences were documented really powerfully in John Lyon's recent book, Dateline Jerusalem, uh, Journalism's Toughest Assignment. So for listeners who aren't familiar with the silencing or heavy qualification of Palestinian voices in mainstream Australian media, can you give us a bit of a broad brush overview? And then, Matt, I might get you to speak to this after that as well. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Australian newsrooms, um, whether it's the the Australian, you know, the the conservative broadsheet or or the ABC, um, they have killed um, Palestinian stories time and time again. And I, you know, I worked at local papers. Um, I worked at the Oz. I worked at the ABC, um, and I have been targeted by um, pro-Israel lobby groups. I had, um, you know, members of the Israeli foreign ministry um, meet with my um, my bosses. But it was this constant sort of back and forth and this attempt to um, have me fired. And it wasn't, you know, at, at the beginning, it wasn't because I had been writing anything in the papers themselves or um, about... Um, you know, the state of Israel or, or Palestine. It was simply because I was existing as Palestinian um, and I was quite unapologetic, say, online, like on Twitter, about the fact that I'm the daughter of Palestinian refugees. I still have, you know, family living in refugee camps in Lebanon. Um, so, yeah, there was um, a very, you know, concerted um, attack, like attacks and intimidation of of like a young a young journalist um, who happened to be Palestinian, and so um, you know, and I mean, I definitely recommend that people um, you know read your mind's book. It definitely scratches the surface, um, at least for my experiences as well. But um, yeah, I guess it's um, 
it's it's so extensive. Um, it's almost difficult to give a broad broad brush, sorry, um, because of how um, just I guess pointed and intentional and and almost um, yeah, just really deliberate um, you know, attempts to to sort of kill stories and and, and there's just a lot involved. So. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it, it is. It's also one of those things that I think people are reluctant to name because it is such an important embedded part of the of the status quo in in colonial media. Matt, did you want to speak to that at all? Oh yeah, I mean just just to back um, Jenny up and add support. Um, and I think yeah, John Lyon's book um, has has brought some of these issues um, you know in, into the conversation, but also to acknowledge that. Uh, Palestinian activists have been raising um, this alarm for many, many years. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, as you said, this has been a you know, decades-long undertaking, uh, especially because the attitude operates as an open secret in Australian media. So how has the work to challenge this status quo gathered momentum in recent years, and particularly over 2021, where we've seen mass protests internationally in solidarity with Palestine? And also, you know, have you seen any recent changes in Australian media literacy about Palestine or in media consumers in Australia's awareness uh, of or desire for more accurate reporting? Uh, maybe, Janine, I'll go to you first. Yeah, look, I... To answer sort of the, the latter um, question, I felt optimistic at the start, um, especially with the Do Better on Palestine um, open letter um, that had you know, 700 signatory journalists, media workers. And I think there has definitely been um, more of an awareness amongst sort of, you know, independent outlets, um, uh particularly those young, uh, run by young people. But um, I guess the thoughts like the ABC, the SBS, uh, SBS um, Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian, um, I, I don't think there has, right? Because um, there was still... So it, it, was such, it was such a slug, for example... Um, and so demoralizing just to even get an opinion piece up by, you know, a Palestinian peer in um, the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, and, it, and it took so much effort and, and, and talking. But they were, um, they were publishing um, opinion pieces by um, lobbyists, people who work for the Zionist Federation of Australia, um, people who work for AJAC, um, and it was still such an uphill battle. I mean, there's no um, weight given to Palestinian voices whatsoever or voices that are, um, you know, pro-Palestinian. Um, and when I say pro-Palestinian, um, you know, that, that means pro-equality, <laughs> dignity, freedom, liberation, human rights. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, I'm not sure. I'm still... It's still very frustrating. Um, I, I think there's been more of a sort of a shift in public opinion. Um, and that's sort of due to, I would say, the, the campaigning and, um, you know, the amazing work to, to, to share what's happening on the ground by, 
um, Palestinians um, in Jerusalem, Sheikh Jarrah, like um, brother and sister Muhammad and Munalka, um, and many others. That yeah, but I um, I would say in my very long-winded way um, <laughs> that yeah, I I'm not too optimistic. I think there's you know some there are journalists that are sort of um, you know they might. Some of them even, you know, signed the petition, uh, signed the open letter, but they still work for sort of Schwartz mm. media and they're very, you know, quiet on, on everything else. And it almost seems like they're just trying to, to cover their asses. So there is, you know, to use the, use the term, um, yeah, kind of just like signaling to, to um, you know, so they, they can almost um, cover themselves. Yeah, I mean... I think it, it's been interesting to see online that there is, um, you know, potentially a growing appetite for more accurate coverage of Palestine. And especially, you know, with with platforms like Twitter, where we are able to access uh, incredible work by, as you mentioned, the Elkhurd uh, siblings, just as an example of, of a huge number of Palestinians who are on the ground and amplifying these messages um, but obviously, you know, that massive shift in, in media logics has not really translated across mainstream media. And we still see this um, qualification of Palestinian voices when they are included and obviously disproportionate uh, weight placed on, um, you know, Israeli lobby groups uh, being able to, to have their voices heard. And, uh, you know, the Sunday paper stakes an explicit position against anti-Palestinian media and most significantly Schwartz Media, which you mentioned, Janine. And this is the parent company of uh, publications that listeners will be familiar with, including Black Ink Books, the Saturday paper, the 7 a.m. podcast and so on. And so maybe we'll go to Matt first. Can you tell us about the boycott of Schwartz Media in particular and the promise of alternative media or publications in this regard? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, well, um, I guess first I'd say that a complete boycott of Schwartz Media, um, you know, shouldn't be dependent on Janine or myself or anyone else providing an alternative platform, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like we should abandon a racist organization as a matter of principle, <laughs> you know, even if there's nothing to fall back on. Um, and I also think, uh, you know, it's important to say that we shouldn't half boycott things. I think Janine was touching on, on that kind of tentative um signaling towards boycott, right? Um, Like just boycotting things a little bit or for the benefit of a tweet, um, you know, or until the heat dies down. Um, You know, Schwartz Media is an insidious, um, you know, ideologically anti-Palestinian owned and operated company. So it absolutely needs to be, uh, you know, completely abandoned and torn down. And, you know, I hope replaced with a new paradigm of, um, of genuine solidarity, um, so, yeah, I mean, in May this year, like, we all saw the horrific massacre, um, of entire families in Gaza, um, and we saw that playing out on our screens, right, thanks to, um, Palestinians again, like, thanks to this sort of incredible, incredibly courageous reporting, um, of their own ethnic cleansing in real time. And, yeah, I mean, of course, there's nothing new about this. These horrors have been continuous, right, for... Uh, over 70 years, <clears throat> but yeah, I think that like, we're saying the, comp- the conversation was amplified, right? Um, and again, thanks to Palestinians. Um, and it was really interesting to see, like during that, um, you know, I, I guess 
during Palestine being pushed onto the agenda, um, there was this resounding silence, um, you know, or kind of coded bet hedging from progressives who still work, who still work for Schwartz today. Um, and I, I guess, you know, we're talking about a company um, that employs people who are, are famous for their hot takes on justice and, and decolonization. Mm. Um, and I, I guess the stakes are that Schwartz provides people with, you know, money and social clout. Um, and, yeah, those, I mean, those things are addictive, right? But people are dying as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I guess I... all of that is to say that, you know, Schwartz does have, um, you know, what Janine's describing as a chilling effect, right? Um, not only with the pages of its publications, but, but even, uh, you know, upon what Schwartz contributors say in their own time. Yeah. And uh, Janine, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I just wanted to add, I think you know, listeners and people might be asking themselves why Schwartz Media when you know, there, are, there, are other, there are other outlets um, that are also you know, chilling stories. I think Schwartz is the most insidious because it, um, it, it presents itself as a you know, progressive um, alternative voice. And um, uh, it's a it's a it's a public like Schwartz Saturday paper for example they cover they you know discuss issues um, you know that indigenous people um, they they discuss refugee issues they discuss everything um, and they're progressive on everything except on Palestine and mm-hmm. you know there were also there is an a, a directive that that was given you know by by the owner and by the current editor-in-chief, and this has all been, you know, corroborated in Dunline's book, um, that they don't want to touch anything that's critical of Israel, because according to Maurice Schwartz, um, Israel gets, you know, enough crap um, elsewhere. Um, and this is someone who lived in, <clears throat> you know, the state, the state of Israel in, in, in Palestine 48 for, you know, a decade. Um, and... Um, yeah, I, I just think, you know, this is a very kind of, um, you know, it's a sort of a two-faced endeavor. Like, mm. it's very, um, yeah, but the Australian, at least, when I was there, despite everything that, um, you know, I, I faced as a young journalist with the, the meetings back and forth, and, you know, Israeli it, diplomats coming to, to see my bosses and ask, why have you hired a Palestinian? I still, when I had a story and I, and I pushed for it, um, that did, you know, um, you know, tell Palestinian stories. Um, they didn't get public. I mean, mm. there, there would be backlash that I would, you know, put my foot down. Um, and I think that sort of ties into the broader, you know, fear amongst journalists. You know, they they just don't think it's worth um, covering these sorts of things or saying anything because of the mounted pressure and attack. You know, mm-hmm. people groups also taking, you know, journalists and editors and um, people on, on, on free trips, um, yeah. state trips to, you know, the state of Israel. Um, but, yeah, I think Schwartz in particular um, is trying to um, see the, you know, the, the progressive outlet. And, you know, as I said, I think it's, it's the most insidious um to completely sort of cross out Palestine and not want to touch um, 
know, Palestine in in a in a critical way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And mm-hmm. I mean, sure. um, I think, you know, um, it is so important to recognize not just, you know, negative uh, reporting or reporting that's qualified, but the silences as well. You know, who's not speaking up on these issues? Um, and just in view of, of wrapping up, because I realize we're coming to time, Matt, can you just tell us um, a little bit about uh, the Sunday Paper Collective and where people can pre-order copies of the Sunday Paper? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, well, look, I think it's really important to um, consider the fact that, you know, Schwartz doesn't exist without the labor of creative people. Um, and so, yeah, a, a, a company... Uh, like Schwartz needs us more than we need it. Um, and so, yeah, with the Sunday paper, um, we've adopted this, I guess, this form of a tabloid newspaper as a device and, um, you know, I guess something of a parody. Um, but the project is much more of an art object, um, at, you know, as much as it is a collection of writing mm-hmm. and images. Um, so, yeah, it's been an incredible process um, of collection and solidarity. Um, so at the moment, um, yeah, it, it's being picked up by uh, a number of retailers, but the easiest way to find it will be um, at our website. Uh, so that's www.thesundaypaper.com.au. Incredible. I can't believe that that, well, maybe the .au, I can't believe that wasn't taken. Um, but. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you both so much for coming on and speaking about this. I really encourage people to go check out the Sunday paper, and um, I'm really looking forward to reading. I've already pre-ordered the first three editions. Thank you so much. That's that's really appreciated. All right. Take care. And that was an interview with Janine Kalek and Matt Chun about the Sunday paper, which is an alternative publication, um, a collection of stories and incredible truth-telling by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and Palestinian authors that comes out in its first edition on Monday, the 6th of December. And you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio Tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post. And there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our T-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and we've just reached 818 in the morning. We are now jumping into an interview with Lu Ching or Elsie, who is a Singaporean Chinese who's been living in Canberra since 2017. And they are joining us this morning to talk a bit more about international students and the implications of the current travel restrictions with the new COVID-19 variant. Hi, Elsie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us this morning. 
Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Nah, um, I guess I'll just jump straight into it. So the new COVID-19 variant has inversely affected international students and skilled migrant workers who are hoping to enter this country this week. What do you expect the repercussions to be based on your own experience and that of your friends and colleagues? Yeah, I guess um, first and foremost, I want to acknowledge my own privilege in this situation as someone who has been had the means to remain in Australia throughout 2020 and 2021 since the start of the pandemic. So I have not had to be stuck overseas waiting for borders to open. But I've had a lot of friends who have been eagerly waiting to re-enter Australia only to have their hopes dashed again in the last minute. I had a friend who just spent $3,000 on a flight to Perth from Singapore. um, And now it's delayed again. And And if... she can't return before February. She actually has to defer for a year. She has been told that her school will not be making kind of accommodations in, uh, in, on the end because she's a vet student in her third year. So is it the repercussions, especially for international students, is having like their studies interrupted yet again, having to continue paying $20,000 per semester to study remotely. I think... As well, for international students who have remained in Australia, this constant opening and reshutting of borders and constant delays is going to... There's a lot of uncertainty. A lot of my friends are scared to fly home because of the situation, and they haven't seen their family already for two holidays. You're right. We're all just, like, collectively shaking our heads in disbelief. Like, we know the reality of it, but just hearing it again, it's just absolutely terrifying what everyone is going through and I guess that kind of leads into my next question that as someone that works in youth work and peer support do you feel like the mental health sector is equipped to deal with the increased support needs of international students like you mentioned that you haven't been able to return home for two holidays and just the changes in work risk rights and just the racism increases in racism what do you think? I think that definitely some great work done by some organizations, particularly those who are supporting migrants and people of color communities. I I know um, quite a few organizations in Canberra that started providing relief for international students in particular that the government just wasn't providing. But the reality is that I think the mental health sector in general still lacks recognition of kind of the differences in access and rights that international students and migrant communities experience. I think the fact that I... I have been here since 2017 and I have not been able to find uh, a person of color, a psychologist or a counselor who can, who can really kind of relate to on a deeper level to the type of cultural differences and, and um, everything that I experience and the stigma and the culture shock of having to uproot my life and move continents. It's, it's really hard. And um, I always come across like international students and migrants who don't feel comfortable accessing mental health support because they just don't see anyone understanding their their situation. Yeah. Um, I've I've had friends who, especially friends who are impacted by kind of ongoing Hong Kong and chi- chi- Chinese tensions, that have left appointments at at counselling um, distressed because of the type of reactions that they were getting. It was quite inappropriate. So I definitely think that the mental health sector has a long way to go. And I think most sectors have a long way to go. But yeah. yeah. No, that's that's so true. Thank you for sharing that kind of nuanced opinion on what's going on. Because 
um, like I'm sure you know, but there is that narrative that people of colour don't access mental health support because of stigma. And, but the reality is it's so much more nuanced and there's a lot at play in this whole system, hey? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely the stigma is there, but it's also the sector not really acknowledging the stigma and taking that step to kind of actually break down those barriers. Yeah. A hundred percent. And what do you hope that the government and tertiary education institutes do to kind of support, protect and advocate for international students in the new year? I think in terms of this question, for me, as someone who has maybe, I was an international student representative, so I actually sat with people who are higher up in tertiary education speaking to them. I think the the one thing I want them to change, which honestly I'm a bit skeptical about whether it can change, is that I hope the government and tertiary education can stop looking at us as cash cows. Yes. Because the number of times I've sat in meetings where when I was trying to negotiate support for international students, especially during that first wave of the pandemic, is just them talking about numbers in my face. And I'm just like, we're, we're, we're part of the community here. We contribute a lot to the community, and especially for international students, we bring in a lot of profits for tertiary education, and for them to have the audacity to say in my face that in, and talk about us in terms of numbers was just ridiculous, that they didn't even try to sugarcoat it, but yeah. Mm, mm, absolutely horrific, and you're right. Like It, it all comes down to numbers when actually... We're, in, we're like community members, we're people that are deserving of support and not just a dollar point. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, and any kind of closing remarks or thoughts as we reach the end of our interview on the current situation? I, I think just a general remark to everyone to just be a little nicer regardless of kind of someone's identity or background like and experiences, it's like the amount of snipe remarks I've received, even in workplaces, the micro, microaggressions, is just ridiculous because we're all living through a pandemic. Um, international students are struggling just the same, if not more, migrants as well. And it's just not okay. And it doesn't take that... It's not that hard to not be a asshole, for lack of a better word, but yeah. No, thanks so much for that, Elsie. Um, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing a bit more about the international student perspective. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Sorry for my little rambo and rent, but no. um, yeah. All important words, all important words. Thanks, Elsie. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Have a nice day. You too. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and we just heard from Lu Ching, um, Elsie, um, who's a Singaporean Chinese who's been living in Canberra since 2017. And they joined us today to talk about international students and the implications of the current travel restrictions with the new COVID-19 variant. Tune in to Grounding Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast. On 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm, we're making space to explore what disability justice has been and will be on these lands, with programming led by Black and Indigenous community members, in addition to programs by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2021. 
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. And we are coming up to time on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And what a show we have had. Um, it's been absolutely huge. And I really encourage people to go back and listen to the podcast later so that you can, you can catch all of our podcasts of all of our previous shows at 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast. So, um, let's jump into this rundown. We first started off with an interview with SJ Norman, who is a, artist, writer and curator and he joined Rosie to speak about his recently released collection of short stories titled Permafrost and this collection is published by the University of Queensland Press. We were then joined or I was joined earlier this week by Lady Lash who's a Kokatha and Greek musician who has brought her musical magic to many venues across the country and um, as a family woman searching for deeper meaning through sound and voice, her musical vision of eclectic rarities uh, is embodied by culture and experience and we spoke about her new album Spiritual Misfit which is which was out with Heavy Machinery Records on the 22nd of November and also heard her incredible track from that album Crest of Gold. And then we listened to an interview that I had with Amani Haider, who's an award-winning artist, lawyer, mother, and author of The Mother Wound. It's a story that explores intergenerational trauma, dispels myths about victim survivors, and how to grow around your grief. The writing is hopeful and devastating and impactful, and it was published by Macmillan Australia, and you can find it in all good bookstores. Afterwards, we were joined by Matt Chun and Janine Kalik, uh, who joined us to speak about the Saturday Paper, which is a new publication displaying the strong solidarity and co-resistances between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and Palestinian communities in so-called Australia, and also to tell us a bit more about anti-Palestinian sentiments in mainstream Australian media. And lastly, we spoke with Lu Ching, or Elsie, who is a Singaporean Chinese that has been living in Canberra since 2017, and they joined us to talk about the international students and the implications of the current travel restrictions with the new COVID-19 variant. And just as a reminder that we have had some intense interviews today, so if that has brought up anything for anyone, you can always reach out to Lifeline on 131114. That's one three one 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 four, and yeah, thanks both. This has been um, this has been an incredible show, and uh, once again, uh, really encourage people again, again, again. Please tune in tomorrow for our special Disability Day broadcast for 2021, and yeah, um, we'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.